A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, a Malava Malka episode. We'll start off with a few letters. Uh, got a lot of feedback lately, and uh, just share a couple of them. It's quite a few interesting ones. Sorry, I can't get to all of them, but we'll try to do a few. So here's one um, which is related to the recent episode of the Rabbi Rakefet interview. And here it goes. Uh, I should have emailed you after your podcast about baseball, but I got busy. However, after I heard Rabbi Rakefet tell over the baseball story, it behooved me to wait no longer to relate over to you another baseball story that involved the Telzer Rosh Hashiva. This story will explain why the Cleveland Indians are cursed. I'm from Cleveland, and I'm a very disappointed Indians fan. So the following story is very close to my heart. This happened back in 1954 when the Indians were playing the New York Giants in the World Series. The Indians were very were heavy favorites to win that series. The first game, first game fell out on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, September 29, 1954. The davening in the Tel Shiva was a very long, and some of the Bachrim were anxious to somehow find out what was going on during the game that started at 1 p.m. with the end of davening nowhere in sight. One Americana Shabachar just decided to leave davening early, probably before hearing all the tekiahs, and went to a neighboring store that was playing the game on the radio. I believe he stayed there the whole time to listen to the game. The Indians lost that first game 5-2. to two. This bachar came back to yeshiva all dejected. Ramatul Katz came over, who was the Tal Yeshiva, came over to him and asked him why he left davening early. Instead of making up some lie, this American bachar actually had the goal to tell this gadol from Tel's Lita, where he actually spent the past few hours on the Yom Hadin. He probably didn't even occur to this bachar how insane that was, especially in the eyes of this tzaddik. Nevertheless, he told Ramatul the truth to which the Rashiva responded in Yiddish, something to the effect of, Ah, don't waste your time, they will never win. And so it was, the heavily favored Cleveland Indians were swept in that World Series and have never won a World Series since. They came close on several occasions, but for us, from Cleveland Indians fans, we were we are resigned to the fact that Tzadik Geyser v'Hashem Mekayim, even when it comes to something so insignificant as the Cleveland Indians. So that's uh, that's the end of the email. What's relevant to us, is, um, and that's a great story, baseball story involving the Telzer Shiva. It's a 
thought that would be nice to share. And recently we also had an episode about uh, Saul Lieberman, and um, got a lot of nice uh, feedback about that one, and very interesting feedback. So I'll just choose two of them to share with you, our great community of listeners. So here goes the first one. Heard a great story from a friend about Saul Lieberman, which I don't believe has been published anywhere. He heard this story from his grandfather, who was very close with Rev Ruderman. In Slabatka, Lieberman took the young Ruderman to the movies one night. Little did they know, the woman selling the movie tickets was the wife of an Avrech in the yeshiva. The altar of Slabatka therefore found out about their little excursion and was very upset about Lieberman's influence on Ruderman. It was then that he decided to distance Rav Ruderman from Lieberman so that he doesn't continue to influence him. However, Rav Ruderman said that the altar never kicked Lieberman out because of Lieberman's ge'oinus in Tyra. End of letter. So that's also a great story. Um, in other words, the uh, reason he's kicked out is is not really related to his future, uh, obviously, to his future association with the conservative movement, but uh, taking people to the movies. That's that's where it's at. I also found it interesting that a wife of a younger man in Slabatka was selling tickets at the movie house and theater, and that was totally legitimate. So that's that's also interesting. Here's another letter about Lieberman, really on the opposite end of, of, of who he was. Here it goes. With regards to the recent episode on Saul Lieberman, I recall hearing a story about him coming to be Menachem Avil Rav Solveitchik in 1967 when the Rav was an Avil multiple times within the year. Apparently, Lieberman engaged him deeply in speaking and learning about Inyane Avelis or other things one may learn while an Avil. Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein was repeatedly sent to bring Sfarim from the other room to continue the discussion. This apparently was of great consolation to the Rav. End of letter. So that's again another great uh, uh, Lieberman story. Again, this time about how his being ability to talk and learning to the Rav uh, was able to console him. So um, it's also interesting. Had another letter. So from. Uh, one of the great letter writers, a great dedicated listener, and great letter writers to uh, the Jewish History Soundbites podcast. He has an enormous storehouse of information, and he always writes these great letters, and I do share them from time to time. And here was a very long one in regards to the Rabaran Cutler episode, and I'm just going to read an excerpt um, from it. Let's see if I can find it. Here it goes. Um, my grandfather recently told me a story. When they were building the shul building, they used the same architect as Rab Aaron had in Lakewood. He wasn't religious, but very respectful. He told him that Rab Aaron was a genius. When they were reviewing the plans for BMG, they ran into an engineering problem where certain spaces didn't fit, but they couldn't figure out how to reconfigure it. Rab Aaron asked what the problem was, and they brushed him off saying it wasn't for him. He insisted. Once they explained the issue, he immediately solved it. They were amazed and inquired if he had an engineering background. He said no, but explained if I can understand a shveratosis, I can figure this out. <laughs> great. That is great. Um, so the that's 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 uh, enough letters for now. There's a lot more in this letter, but maybe for another time. I don't want to spend the entire episode reading letters. There is another thing I wanted to mention from the previous episode. We had a recent episode about the inner circle of Rav Cook, And 
and I said a story about the Nazir, um, about how he was neighbors with Rav David Soloveitchik and brought him a stone from Harabais, which uh, Rav David was not excited about. And I neglected to mention the source of that story. It's also from a dedicated um, listener of Jewish History Soundbites, who not only is he a great listener, but his vast and incredible knowledge of Jewish history enriches me with his amazing information and background and knowledge, and also many others. That's Ellie Neuberger. So I wanted to thank him for sharing that story, as well as many others, which I sometimes uh, either forget or neglect or on purpose don't attribute to the source. So we'll move right over to today's topic. And with Yudtes Kislev, the Chag HaGeula, the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidus, the day that the Alter Rebbe, Rabshner Zalman of Liadi, the Balatanya, got out of jail the first time, he went another time a couple of years later, is coming up this week. So we need to talk a little bit about uh, Hasidus and um, and also the Hisnagdus, the opposition to Hasidus. And uh, what was that all about? Try to cover a, a huge, vast topic like that in a few minutes of a podcast. So, interestingly, the Yotes Kislev celebrations is called the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidus, the New Year of Hasidus, and it was only called that in the time of the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad. Before that, they always celebrated it, but the celebrations reached a new level in the time of the Rebbe Rashab, Shalom Ber, and he officially renamed it the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidus. And it's interesting that at the time, uh, people came to Chaim Meiser Grzynski, the great Litvisha rabbi, Gadol, leader in Vilna, and they, who had an excellent relationship with the Rashab. They worked together on many um, issues facing the Jewish people in the Russian Empire, and they worked very well together. And they told Chaim Meiser, you, hear, you heard the Rebbe Rashab called it now the Rosh Hashanah of Hasidus. They're adding Yamim Toivim, it's Bal Toisif. How can they add holidays to the Jewish year? It's not in our tradition to add your own holidays and do whatever you want. And Reb Chaim Eizer defended it in a very humorous way. He said, uh, he said while, while we here, meaning in the atmosphere of Vilna, of the Haskalah, of the assimilation and secularization that was taking place amongst Lithuanian Jewry at the time, it's the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. So he said, with, in, by us, we're decreasing the amount of Yom Tovim that we celebrate. We're celebrating less and less because there's less and less observance of Jewish life around here. So at least over there, they're increasing the amount of Yom Tovim they celebrate. So now they, they celebrate more. He said it's better to celebrate more than to celebrate less or to observe more than to observe less. That was his response so, you know, that means that we all can get really excited to celebrate Yudtes Kislev. And we'll talk about, uh, so what, I mean, what, why, what is the celebration? The Alter Rebbe got out of jail. So first of all, as it happens, the, a Rebbe getting out of jail can't be that much of a reason to make a whole Yontif, because many Rebbes were in jail, and many of them got out. Um, the Alter Rebbe himself got out a second time, a couple of years later. He went to jail and got out, and... Um, and did not, um, we didn't make a second Yantif. Not only that, but there are two other Rebbes of Chabad who got out of jail. His son, the Mittler Rebbe, 
Rabbi Dov Ber, and um, he he got out of jail. And they, I mean, they, they, you make a fabreng in the day he got out of jail, but there's no yantif, especially not on that level. And then the free the Rebbe, the Rayats, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, also got out of jail. He spent, he was actually arrested seven times during the early communist era when he tried to maintain his Hasidic court in Rostov and then in Leningrad under the Soviets. It's also an amazing story for itself until he got out in 1927. And the day he got out again is celebrated. There is a Fabrengen, the day that he got out. Um, but it's not the same level as the Yotes Kislev, and it's not really celebrated outside Chabad circles. And even beyond Chabad, there was many Rebbes over time who went to jail for one reason or another. The Rizhiner was arrested by the Russians in a, in a, in, in related to um, a case of a murder of an informer, of a Meiser, which was a very serious thing in Jewish communal life in those days. And he was instigated in that, in, in being involved in that, in condoning the act, and they arrested the Rizhiner. And he was in jail for a lot longer than the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe was in jail for 53 days, which is said is corresponds to the 53 Prakim of the Tanya. And the Rizhiner was in jail for over two years, the Rizhiner of Rizhin, for about two and a half years. It was, serious, uh, and it was a serious offense, what he was accused of, and eventually it led to his escape out of Russia from Rizhin and to uh, Austria, where he set up, reset up his court in 1842 in um, Sadiger. Sadigora, Sadiger, depending on who you ask. That's also a story for a different time. His son, in fact, the one who took him over, Bavram Yankiv of Sadiger, also went to jail. It was uh, related to a, a counterfeiting story, and he was in jail for over a year, a long time, and also was released from jail. And there's no yantif about the two of them, or for any other Rebbe for that matter. So the fact that he gets out of jail is not enough to, um, is not enough to make a big yantif or to call it a Rosh Hashanah for Hasidus. It must be something deeper than that. And the truth is, is that it was, is because over here, he was, the reason he ended up in jail was because he was informed on by the Misnagdim. So it's not really just an isolated story, but it's to be seen within the greater context of the opposition to Hasidus. And therefore, when he's released from jail, it's, uh, it's in a certain way he takes it as a sign from heaven, and explicitly so in a letter that he himself wrote after his release to Levi Yitzchak of Barditchev, that it's a sign that his way of Hasidus is correct, and that in heaven they agree with him, and that despite the Hisnagdus, despite the opposition, he's going to continue teaching and writing um, uh, um, Hasidus. So it's to be seen within the story, within the greater context of what was the opposition to Hasidus and how did it play out, and especially during that time of the Alter Rebbe, who was the main protagonist in, in the, in, during the active phase of the opposition. So it's interesting that, that, um, that I, was on a, I, was, I brought a trip, one of my trips we... One of my trips to Lithuania, actually, um, we were in Vilna, capital of Lithuania, Lita. And, you know, people are expecting when it's a trip to Lithuania or Belarus, then it's a very Litvisha trip. You, know, you go to Poland, to Galicia, to Ukraine, to Hungary, then it's more Hasidish. And you're expecting that when you go to Lithuania or Poland, then it's a more Litvish. Sometimes the groups are more yeshivish, depending on the situation. So... 
were in Vilna, and we went to Davin in the only existing shul that's still left in Vilna, and the, the Choral Synagogue, and we Davin there, and the Shliach, the Chabad Shliach to, uh, to Vilna is there, is a wonderful man, Shalom Berkrinsky, and, uh, and he, and he greets us, you know, and we're, we know, we're friends, I see him every time we go to Vilna, so we're schmoozing, and then a guy afterwards in my group says, what is, Chabad doing in Vilna. Vilna's, Vilna's us. Vilna's the, the, uh, this is coming from someone who's a grandson of a Hungarian Jew, but, you know, he's a Shivish, so he assumes that he's Litvish. And he, and he, uh, and he says, Vilna is, is, is Lita, is the Vilna guy, Reb Chaim Eiser. What is, what is Chabad and Hasidish guy doing here? What's going on? So I said, how long do you think uh, Chabad has been in Vilna for? He said, I'm assuming it's since this guy came, but never before that. I said, so the Hasidim have been in Vilna, which include Chabad, also Karlin, for well over 200 years, about 250 years. And the guy, you know, basically dropped and faint. But luckily I encourage everyone on my tours and my trips before the trip starts to get health insurance. You know, you're in foreign countries, you never know what happens, you got to have health insurance. All my trips, the guys have health insurance. So the fact that he fainted was okay. We, we, we dealt with it. So, um, you know, to find out that in Vilna, in the stronghold of the Vilna guy, there were Hasidim almost since the beginning of Hasidus is pretty, uh, Pretty big revelation, and that is, leads us right into the story of the opposition, because the opposition began in Vilna to people, local people, to people who were in the Vilna community who had become Hasidish. And that's when the Vilna Gain originally went out against them, it was against people in the town. It wasn't somewhere far away. He wasn't talking about the Hasidim in the Ukraine. And that's what uh, I want to talk a little bit about now. So the opposition, the uh, stages of the opposition to Hasidis were really went in three stages. The first stage, possibly even from the beginning, it's hard to know, um, maybe even from the Baal Shem Tov's life itself, it's, it's, it's been a big dispute amongst historians, um, but, but, but shortly afterwards, for sure, there was sporadic, uh, not organized, um, mild, I would even say, opposition to local Hasidim in one place or another. There is records and traces of early opposition almost from the beginning, as anything new would be and, and anything that's, that the establishment would be wary of, especially in light of other movements that were around Eastern Europe at the time, such as Jacob Frank and his radical and strange ideas, which is also another story. But um, that was a sporadic and... And again, not organized and not, not a very active stage. And, and that's not something that I'll discuss at this point. The second stage was, I would call the active or even violent phase. And that lasted for a little over three decades. It started in 1772 and it basically had petered out by 1804. Now, when people talk about the, the Hisnagdus, the, major opposition to Hasidus, to the Hasidic movement, they're talking about this. They're talking about these 30 years. Because after 1804, when we go into the third stage, it, it, the opposition completely died down in an active way. It remained 
an ideological opposition, maybe we'll call it a, I don't even, wouldn't even call it a war of ideas, but maybe a dispute of ideas, um, you know, different communities, different customs, uh, you know, books written on each side explaining and justifying their position, why it's better or preferable, or the other side is not good, such as the Nefesh HaChayim that came out from Chaim Velazhner in this third stage. And eventually they learned to work together in the 1840s. The third Rebbe of Chabad, the Tzemach Tzedek, meets Rebetzel of Alajin in St. Petersburg uh, when they're called to a conference, when the Tsar, under the influence of the Maskilim, is, 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 is uh, considering implementing educational reform uh, to the Jews of the Russian Empire, and they had both come there to try to oppose it, or at least... Uh, mitigate the threat. Now, so they both came for the same purpose, and they realized that they might as well work together, because now traditional Jewry is under threat from modern times, from governments, from Haskalah, from secularization, from all the modern movements of the day. There's a common threat and a common enemy, and therefore we can join forces, we'll be stronger together, and from then on, Hasidim and what is called misnagdim, the non-Hasidim, is uh, they learn to somehow work together. So even though there is an ideological opposition, which the echoes of which remain with us till today, um, but there is no active opposition. And the third phase also is somewhat less interesting, so we're not going to discuss uh, that either. What we'll discuss is the second phase, where the opposition is active, at times quite violent, there's there's an attempt to excommunicate the Hasidim and remove them from the Jewish people, to actually put them in Khairim, destroy them, end them as a movement. And we want to understand what was the the, the the context of this opposition, who were the main players, how did they how did they battle on the field, and how did it work, how did it play out, and also why did it start? Why did it end? How did, how do those dates signify the end and the beginning? Now, one of the myths uh, related to the, this, this opposition, this misnagdus, is the fact, is that, is, is as if it was very widespread. Um, through all the searching for so many years to understand this story, it has never been proven that it was widespread. In other words, we tend to think of Eastern Europe at the time as two groups, in the late late 18th century, right? In the second phase, 1772 to 1804, in the late 18th century, Jewry in Eastern Europe is divided into two warring groups, Hasidim and Misnagdim. And they're on the two sides of the color war fence, and and they're and, and that's that's what it is. So that's you know that's that's obviously not true. Hasidim were quite small in number at the time. And the active opposition to Hasidim was even smaller in number at the time. Most were indifferent. Most were not involved at all in one way or another. And, uh, and, and, uh, and that's how it remained. And the opposition mainly was based around a few cities, mainly Vilna, also in Galicia, in Brod, what's known as Brody, in, in, in a couple other places in Galicia, in Lithuania, it also reached Shklov, it actually started in Shklov, Brisk, Minsk, one or two other places. So it was not completely widespread, it was in a few of those big cities that I mentioned, most of those were big cities, 
um, in a few smaller places also that wrote their own uh, cherems against the local Hasidim, um, but it, it, it wasn't as widespread as one would tend to think. Um, what started in 1772 is that the Vilna Gain decided to go actively and oppose the Hasidim. And if we want to understand the Isnagdas at this time, you have to understand the one person in the Vilna Gain. It's a story about the Gain. Um, and the, the Hisnagdus would never have taken the way it would have without the guy. He led it, he initiated it, he spearheaded it, he signed on the Cherems. It was one of the only times he ever took an active leading role in a public uh, official um, way because normally he stayed in, in you know, he, he was, there was a lot to say about the guy. Normally he stayed isolated, he learned all day and night, he was... Uh, you know, one of the greatest people in the, in the you know, in the greatest Tamid Chalm, one of the greatest Ga'inim in the history of the Jewish people in recent times. There's nothing to talk about. The, the Vilna Ga'in was uh, head and shoulders above everyone else, and he stayed mostly to himself. And this was one of the few times that he came out into the public sphere and played an active role. Um, and he had some some serious uh, theological and religious issues with the Hasidim based on testimonies that he heard from people he trusted in Shklov and in Vilna. And it, and it, it led him to a decision that these people are dangerous. They are outside the realm of normative religious faith. They, uh, he had issues with the way they talk about Talmud Chachamim and the study of Torah and rabbis. He had an issue with the way they interpret a certain uh, certain uh, phrases of the Zayhar and Kabbalah. The Gain was a great Kabbalist and mystic as well. And he had an issue with the way they make certain interpretations of Kabbalah. He also took issue with the way they daven. He said that he heard reports that they daven standing on their head, and he did not like that at all. He felt that there was major issues with that and a couple of other religious issues, and therefore he spearheaded the Cherem along with the community leaders of Vilna and the community leaders of Shklov and other close students of the Vilna Gain. They led the opposition. Now, um, a couple of years later, the Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe, not a couple of years later, I'm sorry, at that time, Alter Rebbe and, and Rabbi Nachman Mendel of Itepsk they went to the Vilna Gain to try to explain their position. They lived not far from there. They lived in Belarus. They were the Talmidim of the Magid, along with the Bavram of Kalisk, who I'll get to in a couple of minutes, who, who brought Hasidus to White Russia. And they came to explain, Rabbi Nachman leading student of the Magid of Mizrich, as well as the Alter Rebbe of Shnei Zalman of Liadi, they came to the Vilna Gain to try to explain their position. You know, it, 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 it really bothered them that someone with the prestige, with the fame, with the respect that the Gain had, is going to consider them outside the realm of the Jewish people. It's completely putting them in cherem, and the language of the cherem was very strong, that these people are outside the realm of normative Jewish life, and they can't be considered Jews. He said they are minim, which is a halacha classification, to say that they are not regular believers. They are not regular, traditional, observant members of the Jewish community, and there's a reason to distance them and keep them outside. And they wanted to explain, hey, we're not doing anything wrong. There's been a misunderstanding here. And we have to, we have to be able to explain this to you. You believe testimony that was faulty. 
were not like that, and they come to the Vilna Gain's house, the Vilna Gain refuses to meet with them. So much so that he leaves town. One of the few times that he leaves Vilna. He leaves town because he refuses to meet with them. There's even pressure on the Vilna Gain from Jewish communal leaders in Vilna to meet with them so that they could come to peace, make peace and retract his cherem. And he refuses to bow to the pressure and he continues on. He signs several cherems a bunch of years later in 1781 after the first Sefer in Hasidus is published. It told us Yaakov Yasef, so it renewed the opposition. And these cherems were an attempt to remove the Hasidim from from uh, completely, to, to destroy them, to remove them uh, completely from Jewish life. Now, on the bandwagon of the Gain, there's all kinds of other cherems that are put out by different Jewish communities. Not everyone had the same religious issues as the Gain. Sometimes it was just a way for the leadership of the community to assert themselves uh, from, an, a, from a somewhat rebellious faction, you know, people who weren't davening in the regular community shul anymore. There's also an economic threat. The Hasidim used different shechita, and uh, there was a meat tax that the, that the Jewish communities across Eastern Europe collected. And if Hasidim would use their own shechita, not the community shechita, then they would lose that economic income. They would use that income from the meat tax. So in the Cherem they write that the knives that the Hasidim use are not good for shechita, which there wasn't really a strong halachic basis for that, but it was a way to get back the, the income to the... So there's also a lot of social aspects of the Cherems. There's, there's the elitist members of the community leaders who, who are trying to stamp out the opposition, the threat to the leadership. I'll give you another good example. Um, one of the cherims, one of the early cherims, also said the Hasidim don't keep halacha. What was their example of Hasidim not keeping halacha? It was that they don't put on tefillin on cholamayd. Now today, uh, not many people keep, keep put on tefillin on cholamayd, but in those days, so of course, Sephardic Jewry didn't keep put on tefillin on cholamayd, but in Ashkenaz, in in Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Central Europe, everywhere, everyone put on tefillin in those days. The first ones to stop putting on tefillin were the Hasidim. And uh, it was a major breach in, in halachic, uh, in accepted halacha. How do you not put on tefillin on chalamayit? And, and uh, so they wrote that in the cherem. This is one of the reasons that we have to put these people in cherem. They don't keep halacha anymore. You see, they don't put on tefillin. Now it doesn't appear in any of the Vilna cherems signed by the Vilna Gain. And the reason is, is because the Vilna Gain also held not to put on tefillin on chalamayit. And the followers of the Vilna Gain also didn't put on tefillin and chalamayit. And that's why today in Eretz Yisrael, almost no one puts on chalamayit because they're either chassidim or they follow the old uh, Ashkenazi uh, Prushim practices of the Vilna Gain community in Yerushalayim, what's, what's, uh, what's sometimes called Minig Yerushalayim, but in reality is, is certain practices of the students of the Vilna Gain who settled in Yerushalayim. And many people in Eretz Yisrael practice some of those customs, and therefore they don't put on tefillin. So the Vilna Gain is not going to sign a cherem that the reason that we have to put them in cherem is because they don't do something that he himself uh, he held that that was the proper position to take based on Kabbalistic reasons. Um, so there's the Gain who leads the opposition because of certain very spiritual and real uh, threats that he felt to Jewish life and Jewish tradition. And then there's a lot of stuff around it, which are economic, social, infrastructure of the communities, and uh, all kinds of other issues that arise and crop up 
that give the opposition more momentum. Now, when the Vilna guy died, there was, there was, it was said in the streets of Vilna that there were Hasidim who were celebrating that their great enemy had died. It's unclear if they're really celebrating it, or it's because the Vilna guy died on Cholomite Sukkot, and Hasidim went on and had their regular Simchas Beis Hashayeva, and uh, the, the opponents of the Hasidim felt that that was very inappropriate to carry on with the regular celebrations of Simchas Beis Hashayeva when the Gadol Hadar, the great Vilna guy died, and therefore even more sharp cherems came out as a result. This is also the time when they took it to the next level, became more violent, it's possible that the Vilna Gain tempered the violence with his towering personality, and people felt it would be inappropriate to actually be violent in his presence. But this is what led to the, the getting the Russian authorities involved and led to the arrest of the Alter Rebbe, which took place after the Vilna Gain died. And that's when things really reached almost out-of-control levels of, um, you know, of informing to the Russian authorities the Hasidim against the Mesnagdim, the Mesnagdim against the Hasidim, the arrests of the Alter Rebbe and other Rebbe, the second arrest of the Alter Rebbe, there was another fellow, a real character, Rabbi Vigdor of Pinsk, who was a violent opponent of uh, Pinsk, was also a center of opposition, and, and he um, informed on the Alter Rebbe the second time, and that, that led directly to the second arrest of the Alter Rebbe. But things died down a few years later, because without the Gain's uh, towering authority and leadership, it was very difficult to keep the opposition going. That's one reason. And the second, and maybe even more important reason, is in 1804, the Tsar released a new set of decrees, which, um, which was an edict of, of regulating the Jewish life in the Russian Empire. It had only been a few years since the Tsar had had annexed uh, huge swaths of the former Polish kingdom into the Russian Empire. It started in 1772, which happened to be the year that the opposition to Hasidim started. It also happened to be the year that the Magad of Mizrich died. It happened to be the year that the Hasidus really took off as a movement. A lot of things happened in 1772. And the partitions of Poland continued till 1795. In 1804, the Tsar uh, put out an edict, or, or a series of decrees rather, of, of regulating Jewish life in the Russian Empire. And one of the, one of the laws passed was that any, any group of Jews within the Jewish community has a right to set up their own synagogue. And that and a few other laws basically gave a license for Hasidim to exist legally. And once there was no recourse to the Russian authorities making Hasidim illegal, so then it was hard to be, uh, hard to put them in opposition. Jewish communities had lost most of their authority by now, so Kherim's almost useless. It didn't help like in the olden days, the good old olden days when a cherem actually removed someone from the Jewish community. By now, Jewish communities had lost their power. And, uh, and, um, and, uh, and now they were officially legal and sanctioned. And their, their opposition dies down. Um, cherems are not signed anymore. Hasidim are begrudgingly and then later much more uh, accepted. And the, the, and by now Hasidim as, as a movement has spread, has become so widespread over the last 30 years, possibly even because of the opposition, that it was also irrelevant. The opposition did nothing to stop the spread. It did nothing to destroy them. It pro- probably even strengthened them because we have another letter from the Alter Rebbe. He played the central role here. He was the one who was arrested eventually. He's the one who tried to go to the Vilna Gain. And we have a, a large amount of information about 
the story of the opposition from the Alter Rebbe. And there's one of these letters he writes how um, they had a meeting, all the tzaddikim of Volin, which was the area of the Ukraine where the Magad Mizrich lived, when the first Cherem came out. It was the last months of the Magad's life, and he called a meeting by him in Rovna, where he lived. He no longer lived in Mizrich, lived in Rovna. And all the, they, they all came together to discuss how to react, and the Magad's advice was, don't react. Don't fight back. Take it with love. Take it as part of a test. And don't fight back. That should be the response of the Hasidim. For the most part, they were pretty good at that. And other times, they did respond. It was no longer able to be controlled. But uh, they they definitely uh, were able to be pretty good, at least in the early stages, at withholding any uh, any anything back from all the hate that they received. So the the that's 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 what the Alter Rebbe um, writes that this meeting took place in Ravna by the Magadam is rich, and he says something very interesting. First of all, before I tell you what he said, this is the first recorded meeting of a group of Talmidim at the Magad. This is the first recorded meeting of Hasidism as a movement of different Sadiqim getting together to discuss strategy for the Hasidis for the Hasidic movement. What does that mean? What does that tell us? It tells us something very important. That one of the ways in which the collective identity of the Hasidic movement was formed was because of the opposition. In other words, in a very powerful way, the opposition, the Isnagdis, enhanced and strengthened Hasidus as a movement. But not only that, there is a very sharp wording of the, in this letter that, that the Alter Rebbe says that there are certain factions within the Hasidic movement that brought on the opposition. He said, us regular, normal Hasidim who were careful about our behavior, if everything would have gone like us, then there would have never been any opposition. The reason there was opposition, he says, he blames it in the context of his dispute with the Rav Ram of Kalisk. He said, Rav Ram Kalisk was doing, and his Hasidim was allowing his Hasidim to do extreme things, uh, uh, behavior and and somersaults on the streets of Kalisk, and that got the Misnagdim angry, and therefore that brought on the opposition. And he says that the Magid rebuked him. The Magid rebuked the Bavram Kalisk for causing the Misnagdim to get angry at them. So that's an interesting internal uh, um, discussion amongst the Hasidim, what caused the Hisnagdis to happen. That's a little bit about the Hisnagdis to Hasidim. There's definitely a lot more to say about it, but that's just touching on the topic. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, trips, and tours to explore our glorious past. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.